We're talking about Watergate at age 50 with author, screenwriter, and researcher James DiEugenio. Well, Jim, Watergate, we were much more naive back then. They were hiding a lot of things like assassination plots and coups, which, of course, we now know a great deal about. But in the wake of all of this, Jerry Ford felt compelled to set up a commission, the Rockefeller Commission, which I don't think was intended to look very deeply into a lot of this stuff. <laughs> in the parlance of the time, it was a limited hangout. They're going to let some of the dirty laundry out, but just not all of it. But yet that led to the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, and I think a great deal more was learned about CIA, you know, family jewels. Yes. When, when Pike and Church saw what Ford was going to do with the Rockefeller Commission, there's a very famous vignette, which Morley puts in his book, about where they're having a luncheon with the New York Times. And because of the Watergate thing, Ford had to set this thing up. Because one of the questions was, why didn't you explore the CIA role in Watergate? All right. And they asked him, they said, why did you appoint all these conservative people to this commission, like Ronald Reagan and Lyman Lemnitzer? And Ford said, well, there's some very sensitive stuff that I don't think we should let get out. And Salzberger says, like what? And Ford goes, like assassinations! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To which, he, to which he tries to add, oh, that's off the record. <laughs> right. He tried to say that was off the record, but he didn't say it before he said it. And so they went right. ahead and ran with it. Okay. Yeah. Now, well, Ford, of course, was on the Warren Commission. <laughs> what, a, what a coincidence. <laughs> so was that what he was I, talking yeah. about? Again and again and again, Hunt's trip to, into the White House had a stopover from the CIA at the Mullen Company, which, which when Bob Woodward went to go probe this, he talks to future Utah Senator Robert Bennett, who was working at the Mullen Company, who tries to tell Woodward, oh, you know what, this really has nothing to do with the CIA, you know, echoing, echoing Richard Helms. And Woodward, I guess, went, oh, okay. The Mullen Company was a CIA front. Very apropos of the exact thing we're talking about, I'm holding something you, you put me onto, which was the piece you did in Kennedy and King on the strange death of James McCord. And I, on Jim, on page eight, my jaw dropped here when I pulled up what you wrote, talking about in the summer of 73, Nixon's trying to realize what's really happening. I was unaware of this somehow. He called up H.R. Haldeman at four in the morning and asked him some pointed questions. Did you know the Mullen Company's a CIA front? Did you know that Helms ordered Bennett to hire Hunt? Did you know that Hunt was on the payroll at the Bennett firm at the same time he was on the White House payroll? Nixon, a shock Nixon, is asking Haldeman, did you know this? <laughs> Isn't that great? It's fantastic. Yeah. Nixon's finally beginning to understand what's happening in the, in the summer of 1973. Too late. There's so much we can talk about in all of this. I hope I can... Get Jim Hogan to, to talk directly about some of this. He um, he wrote an essay very recently. I, I was not sure he was still active, but obviously he is. He wrote a nice piece about how it was, and I, and I love this because he's such a great writer. He wrote a piece talking about how after Watergate there was a lawsuit when when G. Gordon Liddy, who wound up became a radio personality of sorts, got on this kick of like you know. Watergate was all about the sex tapes. It was all about a prostitution ring, yada, 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 of which there appears to be a vein of truth, without a doubt. But when he accused Maxie Wells of being part of a prostitution ring, 
she sued him. Right. They went to court, and 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 Liddy won in court. No, actually, Doug, Doug, there were two cases. She appealed, and then she she couldn't convince the jury the second time either. And so when she couldn't convince the jury the second time, that's when the judge dismissed the case. When you get two bites of the apple and you still can't do it. Right. Hogan was describing a Washington Post nasty editorial in the wake of the findings saying like, whether or not Mr. Liddy's comments legally defamed Mrs. Wells, we know what happened at Watergate and it had nothing to do with prostitutes, which I say, oh, not so fast, Buster. The Washington Post did not admit that Mullen Company was a CIA front for two years. For two years, they did not print that. And you know, and I know, and Hogan knows that Robert Bennett owned the Mullen Company when Hunt was there, and he was talking to Woodward. And he he had a case officer, Martin Lukowski. And Bennett was so proud. Oh, I've got this Bob Woodward guy, and I'm feeding him all this stuff, and he's <laughs> right. agreed not right. to talk right. about the Mullen Company, and he's so grateful for all these stories that I'm giving him, and so we're going to keep the CIA out of this thing. Okay? Now, can you imagine that? A journalist? I mean, come on. And so what happened is, when that memo came out, Baker called in Woodward and Bernstein, and in my essay on Morley's uh, book, see, there was no reason to call in Bernstein because he was not being briefed by Bennett. You know, there was a reason to call in Woodward. In my opinion, and I, I'm labeling this speculation, in my opinion, that is the impetus that spurred Carl Bernstein to write his famous essay, The CIA and the Media, in the Rolling Stone, uh, in 1977. We've plugged that many times. We should do it yet again. It is a milestone piece looking at what really goes on and how, you know, influencers, uh, how, how, how the public is being influenced through people placed in position in various media outlets. People, I, I don't think anybody realizes that the godfather to E. Howard Hunt's children was William F. Buckley. Was Bill Buckley. They were good pals, dating way back. They worked at the CIA station in Mexico City. That Carl Bernstein piece is is just, is it, I, you, you do wonder whether he got fed up with the fact that we're being bamboozled by all this, and I better tell the public what's really going on here. <laughs> Here's another very, very odd coincidence, all right? Carl Schaffler was one of the uh, higher-up police officers in the, at the local police station. That night, he wasn't supposed to be working. He was preparing for a trip uh, to go to a family function in Pennsylvania, okay? To everybody's surprise, he decided not to do that, and instead he volunteered for a double shift that night. And it just happens to be that somehow Schaffler's car was like two miles away from the Watergate Hotel that night, okay? Mm-hmm. And, of course, he gets there in a jiffy, and he busts these guys. And, of course, as Angelo Lano said, he was the chief FBI investigator for the Watergate case. He said, look, 
you've got this car there at 2.30 in the morning that's there like in four minutes, all right? He busts these guys. They walk over to the hotel and laying on, <laughs> laying on the bed, laying on the table are these notebooks, this cash, this ID information. Everything is right there. Right, right. You know, and he said... To this day, and this is an FBI agent saying this. It's not me. This is an FBI agent saying this. To this day, I think Schaffler was tipped off, and I think it was Hunt or McCord. Well, I, I can believe McCord. Why would Hunt do this? Because we talked to St. John Hunt on this program many years back, and mm-hmm. he, he described his dad coming home that night in a sweat saying, St. John, I need a little help, as they went out and dumped bugging equipment out in a local pond. I think it's pretty clear, don't you, Doug, that up until the Watergate thing, the break-in, that Hunt had a very close association with Helms. And in fact, in, in Morley's book, this is a big point. He goes, how absolutely brutal Helms was to Hunt afterwards. In other words, he had this close relationship with Howard. It went back to 1957. He was trying to sell his books the Paramount Pictures, you know, as a, as a spy series. America's, America's Ian Fleming. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, after the Watergate thing, suddenly the door comes down. It rolls down right in front of him, and he makes like he doesn't even know him. All right? And on, on top of that, he disparages his service as something like a not very proficient agent, okay, you know, so how did, how did that happen, and why? you got to wonder. To quote from Richard Nixon, did you know that Helms recommended him for this job? <laughs> what the hell's going on here, fellas? There's a lot of betrayal going on back and forth. I mean, how can you not conclude that that burglary was meant to get busted up? They were, they were meant to be caught that night. I don't know how you conclude anything else but that. But the question is, why? McCord was... Actually, one of his functions at the CIA was a chief of security. In other words, it was his job to keep Langley secure. Right. Okay? And he also worked as an undercover surveillance agent. I mean, me and you have studied the Kennedy case. Well, James McCord was involved in bugging the fair play for Cuba committee offices. Okay? She sure as heck did a good job there. All right. They had clear tapes. They had knew everything the FPCC was doing. Okay. So I, I'm sorry. I just have a hard time believing that this guy who did all of this really good surveillance work and went out and bought something like, you know, the equivalent of $21,000 worth today of bugging equipment. All right. Somehow, when it came to the Watergate thing, he didn't know what he was doing. Okay? I mean, I, that's just very hard for me to believe. All right. We're talking about Watergate and some other interesting stuff with educator and author Jim DiEugenio. Well, suffice it to say that the mysteries remain and there's more to the story. And despite Richard Helms's disclaimer, the CIA had a lot to do with what happened at Watergate. Yes, I agree. How much, we're never going to know because it was covered up so well you know, by the Washington Post and by the Urban Committee. And by the way, they didn't even want to print Howard Baker's minority report, all right? They, wouldn't even, they didn't even want to print it. 
they and he had to beg them to add it as an appendix out of the main part of the text. Jim, I didn't mean this to be the, the Diogenio hour, but I think we're going to make it that because we're just having too much fun and we have a few minutes left. But during that time, I think we may want to jump ship and talk about something else you were recently involved with. And as, I, as, I, as we jump ship, I want to note that there's a piece by James Rosen praising, as we've done, uh, Jim Hogan's work, said Watergate at 50, revelations from the newly declassified evidence. And we should point out that a lot of what we've just learned recently about Howard Hunt came from the JFK Records Act and, and data that came, that came through that. Yes, that's, that's accurate. Now, what was the JFK Records Act? All right. In 1992, Congress passed a law because Oliver Stone's film, JFK, had created such a sensation, and he had said the files of the House Select Committee are, de- are classified until 2029. So... Congress put together a commission of five people and a a citizens commission that was going to go ahead and attempt to declassify all the secret files on the Kennedy assassination that had been accumulated from 1963 to 1992. All right. And so they went to work on this called the Assassinations Record Review Board. And they went ahead and they worked on this for approximately four years. All right. They declassified two million pages of documents, 60,000 actual documents, two million pages. All right. And so this was sent into the National Archives. Now, they did not finish everything. And so they put a lot of stuff on what they called phase withdrawals. In other words, they would put a date on a document and saying this should be declassified in 1999, 2001, 2002, etc. All right. And so it, this went on, and it was supposed to be finished in 2017. Right. That was supposed to be the last date. Right. Well, guess what? The only person who could have stopped that was the President of the United States. And Donald Trump, who was trying to run as an outsider, and he did run as an outsider, decided that he was going to stop it. In other words, what happened, and this always happens, the FBI and the CIA go in and make their, you know, their blood-on-your-hands speech. If you declassify these papers, all these secret agents are going to be killed abroad. Sure. Kind of thing. Yeah, all those guys from right. 1963 that are still active, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Okay, and so, uh, and so he did. He stopped it. All right, and then... Well, Biden, Joe, Joe Biden's got a whack at it. He's not doing much better, is he? Biden could have done it also last year. And all he did was he declassified 10%. That was it. So as of today... I'm going to say this very loud and clear. Here we are in 2022, 59 years after Kennedy was killed, okay? And there's 14,000 pages still to be declassified on the Kennedy case. And we should stress, Jeff, Jeff Morley has worked very hard to get a lot of that de- declassified, and he's, been got, he's gotten the runaround from the CIA on this. Yes. And so in our films, our two films... Um, 
you know, JFK Destiny Betrayed and JFK Revisited, what we tried to do was present a lot of the evidence that we now know today about the Kennedy assassination, and we didn't know back in the House Select Committee in 1978, and certainly not the Warren Commission in 1964. And so that's what we tried to bring to the public, okay, what the ARB had declassified, because there was a lot of very interesting stuff there. And I want to ask you about some of it in the, in the 10 minutes or so we have left about the documentary you appear in, The Assassination in Mrs. Payne. It's a good way to close the program, I think, talking about that aspect of what took place back in the day involving this couple that appears to have been manipulated, let's say. Talk about Mrs. Payne and, and the documentary. Right, Max Good is a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker from your neck of the woods, Northern California. And he did a film called The Assassination and Mrs. Payne. Took him a heck of a long time to do it. I think I was the first person he interviewed. Okay. Okay, he was at my house for about six hours. Then I said, I'm getting bored sitting in this chair. Let's go down <laughs> to this restaurant. Okay, and so you can see me. I'm in two different locations in the film. Uh-huh. Now, he focused his film on Ruth and Michael Payne. Now... Who were Ruth and Michael Payne? Ruth and Michael Payne were a married couple who housed Lee Harvey Oswald and Marina Oswald, okay, in the fall of 1963. Now, what happened was that they were introduced to the Oswalds at a gathering by some white Russians led by George de Morinchild. We should point out that the white Russians were not the communists. These were the people that right. fought the communists. <laughs> right. So in other words, the white Russians were having a party for these two communists. <laughs> okay? Yeah, Lee and Marina Oswald. And, we're, and we're not, nobody's supposed to say anything about that. Mm. Okay? And, and by the way, Max asked her that question in the film. You know, why would a white Russian have a party for two communists? And she said, well, that's a good question. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you answer it? Okay, so, so this is how the pains got ingratiated with Marina and, and Lee Oswald. And this friendship kept up from the spring of 1963 all the way to the day of the assassination. All right, through letters, phone calls, etc. All right, and the important thing about the pains from a investigatory viewpoint is that they ended up being one of the strongest accusers of Lee Harvey Oswald in the entire Warren Commission volumes, and in fact, they put together answered 6,100 questions, which is way more than anybody else did. 6,100 questions. I've got to jump in to say there's a showstopper moment in this video, which I think is available on Netflix, where Michael Payne is opining that, well, you know, I think in a, it was footage from the era, you know, our archival footage where he's being interviewed. He says, yeah, I think Lee was very proud of what he did. And you're thinking, Pr- proud of what he did? He denied doing it until the very end. <laughs> what do you mean he was proud? Exactly. Uh, by the way, no, if it's not on Netflix, it has to go to, you have to get it on Amazon. Okay. Okay. All right. 
And and another thing that was so odd is that the paying garage ended up being almost like a coven of incriminating evidence of Oswald in the Kennedy case. Uh-huh. Okay? You know, there's a, a picture of the backyard of General Walker's home. Okay, and so the FBI used that to say that uh, Oswald took a shot at Walker. Right. You know, which is doesn't abide by the police report that night, at least. Okay, and there was also, of course, the uh, camera that uh, Marina Oswald was supposed to use, uh-huh. and along with the incriminating backyard photographs, okay, of Oswald supposedly with his rifle and the pistol that he used. All right, okay, there was a letter that Oswald allegedly wrote to the Russian embassy, which is supposed to prove that Oswald was in Mexico City, you know. And all these things just keep on pouring out. Yeah, that, that garage was an evidence factory. <laughs> and, you know, and, it, and it went on and on and on, yeah. okay? You know, uh, and, and even even when, for example, the Dallas police had stopped investigating, okay, Ruth was still turning up stuff, even when after the Dallas police had stopped visiting, she was, you know, in other words, the Dallas police were like the Keystone Cops. Only Ruth Payne could dig up all this stuff. Would these Mexican souvenirs be of any value? Yeah. <laughs> now, you know what they did on that one? Even the Warren Commission had a hard time with that one. And uh, even the Secret Service at one point actually, I think, brought back one of the letters that she said uh, that Oswald had written because they thought she had written it. Okay. So that, that's how bad this got, okay? You know, and, 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 and during the uh, grand jury in New Orleans, during the Clay Shaw trial, one of Garrison's assistants asked, why did you separate so abruptly from Ruth Payne after the assassination? Because they were not friendly after that. And she said, the Secret Service said it would look bad because obviously Ruth was in cahoots with the CIA. <laughs> I do want to. I do want to add a caveat to that, Jim, because I do recall a time where you and I were speaking to Marina Oswald, and it seems though, no matter what question we would ask Marina, the answers came back unsatisfactorily. I was ready to say at one point, if you ask Marina, what time is it? She, she would have had a hard time with it. I will say this though. Marina is a media magnet, okay? Even though she doesn't have very much to say, you know, the media will show up no matter what. But she's given up talking about it, I think, at this point, has she not? That's what's unfortunate. She doesn't like to talk. She's given up. We tried to get her for our program, okay, and she did not want to participate. She says it's too late, you know. The other side is too strong. You know, well, she does have a point about that, you know. Yeah, I guess so. You know, at the end of that article that you referred to, The Mysterious Life and Death of James McCord, I list some of the overlaps between Watergate and the JFK assassination. And of course, as you know, there is some evidence that Howard Hunt and David Phillips were in Dallas 
on the day of the assassination. It turned out that James Rosen did an interview with one of the guys who was in the Howard Johnsons that night. He said McCord told him that he was in Dallas that day. So this is one of the really extraordinary things about these two shocks to the system, the Kennedy assassination and Watergate, is that on the surface at least, there appears to be an overlap between some of the participants, you know, in the two cases, you know, which I think is really wild, you know, when you, when you think about it, because it goes to the whole heart of what Fletcher Prouty called the secret team. All right, Jim, we're just we're, we're wrapping up on time here. I wanted to give you a chance to, I know that, again, I didn't expect to do the whole hour on this, but it's been fun. Uh, you've got a lot of data out there in a lot of different sites. Why don't you do your best to direct people to them? Okay, great. My website is called kennedysandking.com, and it's one of the, I believe, one of the better websites on the assassinations of the 1960s. We cover all four of them, Okay. Now, uh, my latest book out there is called JFK Revisited, okay, Through the Looking Glass, and that deals with the two documentaries I wrote the screenplays for. I also have a couple of other books that I think are interesting to the public. The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, and that's like a current view of what the case would be if we, we tried it. Uh, in court today. And my other book, Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, okay, which is subtitled JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, that one is more or less about the New Orleans aspect of the Kennedy assassination, which I've always believed to be very, very interesting and very, very relevant. So thanks for letting me plug that stuff, Doug. Well, yeah, something you you said a long, long time ago when we first uh, met, I think, back in the early 90s, was that in the Garrison case, it, it did not end as people had hoped in, in finding, you know, indictments and things that would stand up in court. Um, Clay Shaw certainly had some dirty hands, but it's pretty hard to say that he was a, a main player in the assassination. Nevertheless, you said many years ago, Garrison had the best leads in the case. I mean, yes. he had fantastic yes. leads. But, but nevertheless, there, there's a lot of interesting information that came out of New Orleans, a lot, that is still relevant to this day. Well, and, and one, more, one final plug, JFK Facts, uh, Jeff Morley's site, also something that's well worth people's time to, to explore. Right. His, his, he has a good site. The name of his book is Scorpion's Dance. James Diogenio, it's always a pleasure, Jim. Uh, We covered a lot of ground tonight. I think we educated people as as to what mysteries remain 50 years later regarding Watergate. Yes, I think we did a nice job on that. All right. Well, come again soon. Okay. Good night. Well, that about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we hope on next week's program to... No doubt continue in a political vein because there's so much politics going on at the moment. I don't know how we can, how we can avoid it. So we'll see you then.